Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, January 14th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, in this Detroit uh, and Dr. Martin Luther King nationwide federal holiday that will be commemorated uh, this week, weekend and tomorrow. And of course, uh, later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the ongoing bombing of Yemen by the United States and the United Kingdom aim at halting their solidarity actions with the Palestinian resistance movement. Lebanon resistance forces are pledging a war without boundaries if the Israelis continue their siege of Gaza and also their attacks in southern Lebanon. The resistance efforts in Gaza are continuing. We'll have detailed reports on that. And the Horn of Africa state of Somalia is once again being targeted by imperialism as a source of piracy. In the second hour, we pay tribute to Dr. Okay, who is it? Hello, who is it? Who? Oh, I think you got the wrong, uh, this is the fifth floor. Okay. You got the wrong, uh... And, uh, to continue, um... In the second hour, we pay tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the 95th anniversary of his birth. Finally, we look at the African National Congress of South Africa and their efforts to maintain leadership and internationalism. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. And um, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the orchestra of Um Kaltum from the North African state of Egypt. Uh, This is a concert uh, recorded live in 1957, let's listen in. بين الجزء الأول والجزء الثاني من هذا الاحتفال اتجهت السيدة أم كلثوم إلى حيث يجلس السيد الرئيس وقدمت له تهنئة الفن الفنانين سواء منهم المطربين او الممثلين او الملحنين قدمت تهنئتها وتهنئة الفنانين بالعيد الفضي لسلاح الطيران انفرجت الستار الان عن ام كلثوم ايها السادة اغنية عود تعيني Thank you. 
I'm 
الجديدة التي ألفها أحمد رامي 
ولحنها رياض السنباطي غنت لسلاح الطيران الاغنية الثانية وكانت قد قدمت قبل ذلك نشيد سلاح الطيران بعض رجال ابناء الطيران يتجهون الى حيث يجلس الرئيس جمال عبد الناصر ويقدمون الى سيادته بعض الالبومات الخاصة بالسلاح الجوي وتطوره كثيرون من المصورين يلتقطون الصور التذكارية مع قواد الاسلاب المختلفة والوحدات الجوية بعد ان قدموا هذه الالبومات المصورة عن تطور سلاح الطيران حيوا الرئيس كمال عبد الناصر التحية العسكرية واخذ الحاضرون جميعا يتحدثون بعد ذلك عن اغنية ام كلثوم في الصف الاول يجلس السيد علي صبري ثم السيد حسن ابراهيم السيد زكريا محي الدين والسيد حسين الشافعي لواء كان الحبر حكيم عامر اللواء صدي محمود وتوسط الصف الاول الرئيس كمال عبد الناصر ثم السيد عبد اللطيف البغدادي ثم السيد انور السادات ثم السيد كمال الدين حسين ثم احد الضيوف العرب ثم لواء كان الحرب محمد ابراهيم ثم الاستاذ توفيق يونس حتى يحين انفراد الستاره عن الجزء الثالث والاخير من هذه الحفله سوف ينتقل الميكروفون الى دار الاذاعه ايها الساده نحييكم من دار سينما ريفولي والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله Welcome back. And that was uh, the Um Kaltum Orchestra uh, uh, live re- concert uh, recording uh, over Radio Cairo uh, in 1957. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, January the 14th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. Our lead story uh, deals with the current uh, United States-United Kingdom aggression against uh, the South, uh, of course, the Southern Arabian and West Asian state of Yemen. The aggression carried out by the United States and Britain since Friday have resulted in the martyred Uh, martyrdom of seven service members of the Yemeni armed forces, an American-British aggression targeted Jabal Jidah in Al-Luhaya district in the coastal province of Hodaida, western Yemen, the Yemeni news agency Saba based in Sana'a reported. Meanwhile, Al-Mayadeen uh, correspondent in Sana'a reported uh, that intensive Flights of U.S. spy drones were recorded over Hodaida. This aggression marks the third consecutive attack carried out uh, by the United States and the United Kingdom uh, since Friday at dawn uh, with the strikes targeting the capital of Sana'a, Taiz, El Haja, and Hodaida. Uh, commenting on the earlier aggressions, the Yemeni Supreme Political Council of the Sana'a government declared that now, quote, all American and British interests have become legitimate targets for the Yemeni armed forces. The Yemeni armed forces announced the martyrdom of seven service members in uh, the strikes. Leader of the Ansar Allah movement, uh, Saeed Abdul Malik Al-Houthi, 
earlier warned that, quote, any American aggression against Yemen will not go unanswered, unquote, emphasizing that, quote, uh, Sanaa is ready for any confrontation uh, with Washington, unquote. In a speech uh, earlier today, Hezbollah's chief, Saeed Hassan Nasrallah, described the United States and the United Kingdom aggression on Yemen as, quote, reckless, unquote, stressing that the U.S. President Joe Biden will soon realize that the attack on Yemen was, quote, a foolish mistake, unquote. He explained uh, that if Washington assumes the Yemenis will now stop their operations in support of Palestine, then, quote, they don't know Yemen and they don't know Yemenis, unquote. Quote, the Americans believe that Yemen uh, will back down after the aggression. They are mistaken and ignorant, unquote, he said, warning that, quote, the American aggression will lead to the continued targeting of Israeli ships and ships heading to the occupied entity. Saeed Nasrallah also addressed the militarization of the Red Sea by the United States and its allies. He noted that while previously 95% of the shipping through the waterway was safe and secure during Yemen's operations, that number had plummeted to almost zero after the United States and its allies got involved militarily and attacked Yemen. This proved that the U.S. is contradicting itself, while the U.S. is claiming it does not uh, the it does not the Israeli war on Gaza to expand, saying they don't want the uh, war to expand. It is one expanding. It is they who are expanding. Saeed Nasrallah added. Other news uh, from Lebanon: Israeli is Israel is drowning. Yet we are being threatened with defeat. Israeli forces. So. Welcome and greetings, the Hezbollah leader said in a speech earlier today. On the one-week anniversary of the martyrdom of Commander Wissam Tawil, the leader of the Lebanese resistance movement Hezbollah, highlighted significant uh, points regarding the ongoing military front uh, with war front with the state of Israel. Hassan Nasrallah's speech also took place on the 100th day of a battle known as the Palestinians and Lebanese as Al-Aqsa Flood, which is considered to be the first time that non-state political actors in the Middle East have unified against Israel in a defining military struggle. Below are excerpts from Nasrallah's speech, and you can read uh, these uh, this speech uh, if you just log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, and we'll give you information on how you can log on to the Pan-African Newswire at the end of this segment, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, after 100 days of Palestinian steadfastness and resistance to the ongoing Israeli genocide in Gaza, an important question imposes it. Is this the age of the Palestinian armed resistance? In a speech commemorating the 100th day of the ongoing Israeli genocide war on Gaza, Abu Obeda the military spokesman for the Al-Qasim Brigade said that the majority of all weapons used by the resistance in the Strip were manufactured by the resistance itself. According to Abu Abeda, these weapons include everything from sniper guns to anti-personnel shells to various types of armaments, including the advanced al Ghul sniper guns. Even much of the resistance munitions have itself matched is itself manufactured in Gaza, he said. These statements would have not had as much impact before October 7th 
as they are having now, following 100 days after the relentless Israeli war involving hundreds of thousands of Israeli soldiers and the world's most advanced weaponry. For years prior to the current war, many voices, including those of the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah itself, have argued that armed resistance is, quote, useless, unquote, and that it will have little impact on the nature of the conflict between a far superior military power like Israel and besieged and occupied people like the Palestinians. Sometimes that claim was made based on honest assessment. After all, the Israeli Defense Forces is considered one of the most advanced armies in the world and even the most powerful in the so-called Middle East. The power of the IDF uh, does not necessarily come from the IDF itself, for most of the security industry in Israel is dedicated to high-tech technology, a majority of which is manufactured for export purposes. Without direct U.S. financial and military support, including hundreds of millions dedicated to research, and that's research in quotes, the Israeli army would not command this kind of status. But of course, there's the Merkava, the pride and joy of the Israeli military industry, often described as impenetrable, even uh, the best tank uh, in the world. On the other hand, Palestinian resistance fought using the simplest of means and often occasionally smuggled weapons. And uh, this uh, story can be read in its entirety as well over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And finally, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, the International Chamber of Commerce International Maritime Bureau, the IMB, is advising shippers to remain vigilant as they transit waters off Somalia and the Gulf of Aden as piracy remains a threat. Now, with at least four vessels reported to have been hijacked since November off the Somalia coast, two of which are still being held uh, for ransom by pirates, uncertainty uh, has gripped operators of cruisers, ships, cargo vessels, and oil tankers with fears of cargo delays and a resultant increase of prices in the coming days. Four vessels reportedly attacked off the Somalia coast are VF Almiraj 1, MV Central Parker, the Liberian flagship, Lila Norfolk, and Maltese flag bulk carrier Marine. The IMB director, Michael Howlett, said the latest incident demonstrated the continued capabilities of uh, those who are described as pirates uh, in Somalia. And uh, you can read all of these stories in their entirety and even more, much more, over the Pan-African Newswire. And that's going to conclude uh, our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal for this episode. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning of the day, 
uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 14th, uh, 2024, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. of the band Love uh, from uh, the state and city of Los Angeles, California, and uh, that uh, track uh, was from their fourth album entitled For Sale. The tune is entitled I'm With You, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 14th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And tomorrow uh, represents uh, the 95th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it is designated as a federal holiday inside the United States. We're going to play a major policy address uh, by Dr. King uh, delivered on April 4th of 1967 
just one year uh, prior to his martyrdom. Uh, this speech was delivered at the Riverside Church uh, in New York City. It is uh, often entitled, Why I Oppose the War in Vietnam or Breaking the Silence. Let's listen to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I'm in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. <clears throat> Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, 
Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation. This speech is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia. Nor is it an attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy of Vietnam. Neither is it an attempt to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they must play in the successful resolution of the problem. While they both may have justifiable reasons to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. And then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place 
when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And so we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men. I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems, I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government, for the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. For those who ask the question, aren't you a civil rights leader? And thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace. I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirmed the conviction that America would never be free or saved from itself until the descendants of its slaves were loose completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we were agreeing with Langston Hughes, that black bard of Harlem, who had written earlier, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. 
Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be are led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1954. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for that children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative? Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can I say to the Viet Cong or to Castro or to Mao as a faithful minister of this one? Can I threaten them with death? Or must I not share with them my life? And finally, as I try to explain for you and for myself the road that leads from Montgomery to this place, I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction that I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race, a nation, a creed, is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood. Because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children, I come tonight to speak for them. This I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation, and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam, and such within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers 
of each side, not of the ideologies of the Liberation Front, not of the hunter inside gone, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them, too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a farmer colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. And we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination, and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform one of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war cost. Even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Geneva Agreement. But instead, there came the United States, determined that whole should not unify the temporarily divided nation. And the peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported bad extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all this was presided over by United States influence, and then by increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. When Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictators seemed to offer no real change 
especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America. As we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support, all the while the people read our leaflets and received irregular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers into concentration camps where minimal social needs are rarely met. They know they must move on or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go, primarily women and children and the aged. They watch as we poison their water. As we kill a million acres of their crops, they must weep as the bulldozers roll through their areas preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wandered into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we allow ourselves with the landlords and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe? Where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones? We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now that is little left to build on save bitterness. What of the National Liberation Front? That strangely anonymous group we call V.C. or Communists. What must they think of the United States of America? And they realize that we permitted the repression and cruelty of DM, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South. What do they think of our condoning the violence, which led to their own taking up of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North, as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us for now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of DM, and charge them with violence while we pour 
every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that the men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam, and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will not have a part? They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter. And they are surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them, the only party in real touch with the peasants. They question our political goals, and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again and then show it up upon the power of new violence. Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. Far from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition, and if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. Here it is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition, and if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi, in the north where our bombs now pummel the land and our minds endanger the waterways, we are met by deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words, and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French, the men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris and the willfulness of the colonial armies. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination at tremendous cost, and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. You're listening to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on Beyond Vietnam. This is Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling the following toll-free number, 1-800-444-1977. Again, that toll-free number is one 800 444 1977. 
Stay tuned at the end for complete details on ordering. After 1954, they watched us conspire with DM to prevent elections which could have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the united Vietnam. And they realized they had been betrayed again. When we ask why they do not leap to negotiate, these things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the Diem regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreements concerning foreign troops. And they remind us that they did not begin to send troops in large numbers and even supplies into the South until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. And nor remembers how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace, how the president claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces. And now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and shelling and mining we are doing a part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation of the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than 8,000 miles away from its shores. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam and to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese. And the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America, who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America, to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours.
This is a message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently, one of them wrote these words, and I quote, Each day the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese and in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans, who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory, do not realize that in the process they are incurring deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom, and democracy, but the image of violence and militarism, unquote. If we continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. If we do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately, the world will be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways in order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam, we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war and set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement, part of our ongoing... of our ongoing commitment might well express itself in an offer to grant asylum to any Vietnamese who fears for his life under the new regime which included the Liberation Front, then we must make what reparations we can for the damage we have done. We must provide the medical aid that is badly needed, making it available in this country if necessary. Meanwhile... Meanwhile, we in the churches and synagogues have a continuing task while we urge our government to disengage itself from a disgraceful commitment. We must continue to raise our voices and our lives if our nation persists in its perverse ways in Vietnam. We must be prepared to match actions with words by seeking out every creative method of protest possible. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions. But we must all protest. Now, that is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade 
against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, and if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concern committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end unless there is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past ten years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela, this need to maintain social stability for our investments, accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia and why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. <laughs> Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. 
On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. That is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There's nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, 
and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores, and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. This oft-misunderstood, this oft-misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tornby says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word, unquote. We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. 
we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, that is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flooded ebbs. We may crowd desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbo residues of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words too late. That is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar Khayyam is right to move in finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time, reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God. And our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their rival as full men, and we send our deepest regrets? Or will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost, the choice is ours. And though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. As that noble bard of yesterday, James Russell Lowell, eloquently stated, once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah, often eats the gloom of light, and the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light, though the cause of evil prosper. Yet this truth alone is strong, though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. If we will make the right choice, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we will but make the right choice, we will be able to speed up the day 
all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on Beyond Vietnam. He spoke at Riverside Church in... Uh, that was uh, the uh, major uh, policy to address uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. on April 4th of uh, 1967 uh, at uh, the Riverside uh, Church. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today. Uh, today is Sunday, uh, January 14th, uh, 2024. This is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and uh, tomorrow is the uh, federally uh, recognized and designated holiday in honor of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from, uh, there will be the 21st annual uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, March and Rally, uh, beginning at noon at the St. Matthew St. Joseph Episcopal Church, uh, located at 8850 Woodward Avenue at Holbrook, starts tomorrow uh, at noon, uh, January 5th, uh, 2024. Uh, invited guest speakers include Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, of uh, the city of Detroit and uh, UAW International President Sean Fain, among uh, others. Uh, who, of course, will be involved uh, in uh, that important and very, very significant historical event uh, that occurs uh, every year and has occurred uh, every year uh, since uh, 2004. And uh, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
of the new Rotary Connection uh, with lead vocals uh, by Shirley Walls, uh, the classic uh, new Rotary Connection album from 1971. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. 
special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 14th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit and in the Republic of South Africa, where the government has taken legal action against the state of Israel in defense of the Palestinian people uh, charging genocide at The Hague uh, for uh, the siege upon Gaza, where over 23,000 people have been killed and over 2 million uh, being displaced. Let's listen uh, to a interview uh, with uh, the African National Congress Secretary General Fakili Mbalula. Uh, he will be discussing various aspects of the uh, ANC program for 2024, and including uh, the elections and other issues. Let's listen in. The 112-year legacy, the ANC has established the January 8th Statement, a tradition since 1972, as a pivotal moment where the National Executive Committee outlines the roadmap ahead for the year. Originally delivered by Oliver Tambo, with a focus on nation-building at the time, the ANC now finds itself struggling to uphold some of its principles and failing to recapture the movement's past glories amid contemporary challenges. Good evening. Welcome to Unfiltered. I'm Sizwe Mbofu Walsh. As South Africa inches closer to the all-important 2024 election, pressing issues such as unemployment, load shedding, and crime persist. And while internal party conflict simmer, the ANC remains South Africa's biggest party. As President Ramaphosa prepares his address, the critical question remains, can South Africans entrust the ANC with another five years of power? amidst lingering citizen expectations and a struggling national agenda. And to answer some of these questions, we couldn't be joined by anyone better than the Secretary General of the African National Congress, Mr. Figile Mbalula. Mr. Mbalula, welcome to Unfiltered. We're very glad to have you. And could I begin our conversation, of course, with where the headlines are. Uh, I, I want to share a clip with you uh, which comes from the chairperson of, of the party, Mr. Gwede Mantashe, in fact, your predecessor, and begin by just asking you to, to respond to his statements. Let's have a look, and, and once again, thank you very much for joining us. I don't know if um, uh, those were revelations. I think I, I listened very carefully to what he said, uh, Secretary General. He's my Secretary General. I thought he was carried away by yourself, guys. <laughs> uh, he saw your cameras, he got taken away, and he said things you should not have said. Uh, to me, uh, it's an issue that we will have to deal with it internally, that when you lead, you count every word you say. If you don't, you catch fire. Welcome back to Unfiltered, uh, Mr. Mbalula. Uh, we, we played the clip to, to set the tone. Of course, there have been many headlines about your statements around the Nganja matter and President Zuma. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you and welcome back. And uh, I wonder how you respond to those, those comments from your chairperson. 
thank you very much, Siswe, and uh, all the listeners of Unfiltered, and thank you for having us for the second time. Uh, we're coming to you live and direct from Bombela, where we will be hosting. Bombela will be hosting uh, 112 celebrations of the ANC. I am not going to respond to the national chair because uh, we've got uh, established. Uh, we have established a way of doing things, uh, which is uh, not to talk to each other via the media. I am prepared uh, to respond to whatever I said that have raised an alarm, both positive and negative, which is to be expected, about my address on Sunday uh, in Mchindi. The national chair, we have protocols. Uh, I've been trying to get hold of him the whole day, but I understand we're in the field and uh, I couldn't get hold of him. We've got protocols. Uh, we don't talk past each other. We don't talk in the media. Uh, we don't promote public spats. Uh, I'm available. I'm around. Uh, I'm open to counsel from elders and everyone uh, to give me guidance. Uh, I'm not uh, allergic to any criticism. So I am not, in respect of those protocols, going to be the first to break them. Mm. The national chair could have raised the issues with me uh, if uh, he's got the concerns about what I said. But nonetheless, I can get into the issues that I raised in relation to Nkandra Before we get uh, and there. the matters that I raised and the context to it. Absolutely, and, and we will delve into that. Before we get there, can I just ask, do you think that uh, the chairperson, uh, Mr. Mandashe, was, was wrong to go out in the media and criticize you and should have followed internal protocols in the same way that you aren't criticizing him publicly? Because he clearly did go to the media and cast aspersions over your leadership. Yes, he did, uh, which is not supposed to. Uh, so I will leave it there. He's not supposed to do what he did. Uh, I will not uh, respond to the national chair uh, in the media. I sit with him every Monday. He was a secretary general himself. Uh, he did not have a smooth sailing secretary general term. Uh, so he knows what secretary generals are expected and the office of the secretary general, what is expected of it. So I leave it there, Siswe, because uh, me and him, we meet every day. We are together here in Bombela. So uh, I will engage with him uh, with regard to those remarks. Uh, uh, and at the same time, uh, remind him about uh, the protocols of the organization. Uh, there is no supreme leader in the ANC who is allowed to do as they wish and uh, break protocols as and when it suits them. If the Secretary General has overstepped or done something that is wrong, he himself, the Secretary General, is not a demigod. He can be called to order, he can be guided, and uh, that is what uh, we follow. So I'm available, and I'm not going to respond to my, to my national chairperson of the ANC through the media. And if he himself uh, had views that he has shared with everyone else uh, in public about me and casting aspersions on my character and leadership, he knows he should have done that uh, to me. So uh, I will leave it there, Sizwe. 
Let's come on to this, this question of, of your recent statements. A lot has been made of them. I think many people maybe haven't looked at them particularly closely. You've attempted to clarify what you meant when you said that uh, the way that the Nkandla matter was handled in Parliament amounted to the defense of Ubutoki. Uh, what is your current stance and what is your reaction to the reaction to your statement about the ANC effectively lying or, 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 or being untruthful in the way it defended President Zuma around Ganja? Uh, first and foremost, uh, don't uh, people misinterpret what I said. And in, the second point is that Iskosa is into Asitoliqua. Uh, I didn't say the ANC is a liar. I said the minister had the difficulty to explain he was sweaty, uh, to explain the untruthfulness of explaining that uh, a swimming pool is a fire pool. It's a documented truth. Uh, it is well known. And uh, I was giving history. And I said that the ANC will respond, and the ANC will respond to everything that President Zuma has said from the launch of his party and uh, to date. And uh, I said to members of the ANC whom I was addressing there that uh, we have been dealing with uh, the Zuma question for over uh, 20 years. Professor Ngajiana characterized it as a Zuma exceptionalism. Now, we have been dealing with that exceptionalism for over 20 years, and I reminded them that there was Nganda, which we veered off and did things that we're not supposed to do. And if you forget quite quickly, Jackson Mtembu speaks to us from the grave. He apologized in Parliament in the manner in which the matter was handled. We faced a scathing court judgment delivered by Chief Justice Mukweng Mukweng. And that judgment directed the president to do certain things, including that he must pay. And we all know where we are. Within 60 days, they had to report back to the Constitutional Court on the execution of the court judgment, which included that uh, ministers Ndleko and others who were involved should be reprimanded. The Constitutional Court said the swimming pool is a swimming pool and uh, it must be paid for and all other things that needed to be paid for and that National Treasury must work with everyone else to determine the cost which is what has happened and we know now that uh, President Zuma uh, was in debt of uh, 7 million for the payment of uh, the Nkanda uh, costs. So you've said that it's into Astoli and you're right, it's uh, Tileo's quarter, that's for sure. Um, but I, I want to go to your specific words because I think a, a lot of what you have said has been taken out of context. And I want to go to specifically what you said because there's a part of it that I think does need to be, especially this term Ubutoki, and exactly what it relates to. And so let's go to that, and then we'll come back and, uh, and, and see your, your response to that. In 
defense of our president, we went to parliament and opened an ad hoc committee and said uh, a swimming pool is a fireproof. Yeah. People have lost their careers. So, so again, I think just without being unfair to you, the, the upkoki part, or what could be called lying, or at least untruthfulness, to defend upkoki would be to knowingly defend a lie, if my translation is, is correct. Did the ANC know at the time that what it, it, was, been, what it, it was defending, okay. if I can just... Did the ANC know at the time that what it was defending was Upkoki? The ANC was given a report uh, uh, by those who were involved. They said that was a, a fire pool. Uh, and then the ANC went down to look into the swimming pool, and he found that indeed it was a swimming pool. And then uh, you can follow the records thereafter, that uh, after the judgment, uh, there was a, a lot of uh, anxiety in the party about the fact that uh, some of the untruths were, 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 were spoon-fed to the party by people who were in positions of authority, which we know by now that in terms of the court judgment, a court judgment that those things that a fire pool was a swimming pool were untruths and the judgment was against us the courts decided that parliament took a wrong route of going via ad hoc committee instead of taking the report on review and it fell on president zuma and president zuma alone to do that and then we took responsibility and the anc took collective responsibility for all the wrongs that happened then. And uh, we all know that those wrongs were corrected and uh, we were heavily punished for the untruths that uh, were found by the courts and the political parties rose in their, in their percentages from 5% uh, party to 10% because they took us to court. Jackson Mtembu admitted in Parliament that uh, we did not listen to our colleagues, which means uh, other parliamentarians, when it came to that particular matter. And therefore, uh, we are very sorry about that, and uh, we promised not to repeat such a thing again. So, so, so this is can, what I stated. So, Mr. Malula, can, can I just... He was defending... Let me explain. Well, no, no, I, I, will okay. give you, I will give you ample time, and we still have nearly, nearly 45 minutes to go, so we're still, still early. But the question I wanted to know, you've taken us through the legal history and, and that's appropriate. And yes, the Constitutional Court castigated former President Zuma for, for Mganza. But what I think was interesting about what you said was it seemed as if the ANC knew that what it was defending was wrong. But simply because former President Zuma was the president at the time, you, de you decided to defend him even though you knew it was a lie. And that was very troubling because it caused people to ask, well, are you doing that over other things? Are you, have you done that over Borsasa? Have you done that over uh, questions like Palapala? Pala? So 
I think the key question is, did the ANC know, not necessarily did the court tell the ANC that what Zuma, uh, uh, former President Zuma did at the time was wrong? Uh, Sizwe, we are talking post facto and dealing with the present in relation to what happened uh, in the past post facto about uh, Nganda. And in this particular instance, I'm relating historical facts that uh, this is what happened to us. Obviously, when all those things happened, up until the ANC as a party was corrected, uh, it thought that uh, it is doing the right thing. But it was proven uh, through the process and uh, diagnostic process of the court processes that uh, what they were defending was, was incorrect. Okay. So we even took a collective responsibility for that. Yes. Let's, and uh, yeah. that was incorrect and that uh, there were untruths in what we were actually defending. Yes. Let's go to a break and we'll come back and ask other questions about uh, the formation of uh, the MK party, about the health of the ANC and the future in 2024. Don't go anywhere. Stick with us on Unfiltered. We're in an exclusive conversation with the ANC Secretary General, Figile Mbalula. Welcome back to Unfiltered. We're in a fascinating conversation with ANC Secretary General Figile Mbalula. Mr. Mbalula, of course, uh, another issue that's been making the headlines is the formation of the Mkondo Esizwe Party. Uh, former President Jacob Zuma has on the one hand said that he remains a member of the ANC, but he is go not going to support the ANC in this election and will support uh, the Mkondo Esizwe Party. I want to spend some time on this, but before we do that, I, I, I want to uh, just play a clip of what you have said about what this means for former President Zuma in the ANC, and then we can, we can uh, dive deeper into that further. Let's, let's have a look at that. He is in control of his life. When they will not tanda, invite Not going to take him to DC. He has already expelled himself from the ANC. So, Mr. Mbalula, uh, your stance is he's already expelled himself from the ANC. Do you, do you not think there's any formal process necessary on that? Uh, thank you, Sizwe. What, what uh, uh, the, the, the departure of President Zuma from the ANC, he has deliberately made it to be complicated when he has in fact left the ANC by forming a political party which we knew for quite some time uh, but uh, we didn't believe it that uh, indeed this could be true uh, but now uh, it is water under the bridge he has formed the party he owned up to it and is leading it and uh, he is busy recruiting people uh, to join him in the party in the ANC is recruiting within the ANC He's recruiting even senior leaders of the ANC, uh, talking to them to join him in this party. And then uh, he has said that uh, he has not left the ANC. 
but uh, is asking people not to vote for anyone but uh, vote for this party. I think uh, in the past few weeks, admittedly, he has gone out public and say, City Labo, it is us who own that particular party. And yes, uh, yes, from one rally to the other, demonstrated uh, beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that uh, he is the ad architect behind uh, and the brains uh, behind the party. So uh, that's what we are explaining there. You don't expel somebody who has decided to leave. Of course, uh, when he says he's still a member, technically you've got to look at it and even politically uh, about what does that mean so the anc have resolved in the national executive committee that uh, we will respond to this matter it happened on the 16th of december and uh, we don't want to make president zuma our manifesto so we must respond and rebut some of the untruths that uh, have been peddled by him uh, and um, we will respond politically and ideologically to this uh, party uh, at the right time. We have said that. Um, the NEC was quite anxious to say we must do it now. We felt that we must not do it. Even myself, I outlined the process and the fact that uh, we are going to respond. However, it is quite clear that uh, I went overboard. Um, because we don't want to respond in snippets, you know, and uh, in breaks, ad hoc, uh, to a big thing like what President Zuma has done. We, we need to explain to the people of South Africa what does that mean. Where do we come from with President Zuma? Because he's saying a lot of things, both in public and in private, to many people and different people. So we need to clarify that. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and articulate the position of the movement with regard uh, uh, to this party. But for now, we have to explain to our members that uh, Umkonto is a party, it's not ANC uh, party, and uh, uh, our members must stay with the discipline that they've shown uh, in the organization. On our part, we are challenging uh, the existence of that party, and we did from May this year. We won the case uh, in the IEC. The second one uh, were given technicalities why it was thrown out and the party was recognized. We are now, uh, today, I signed the papers uh, challenging the patent, the trademark of the party, because that is the ANC trademark, Umkonto Wesizwe. We will challenge that. And then secondly, we are going back uh, to the uh, uh, electoral court uh, because uh, those are our colors. And then uh, this party has got the potential to confuse people. As you would have seen in the ballot, you've got political parties that have the same colors as ours. And uh, they simply don't campaign and they just get people voting for them. So we are not opposed in any way for anyone forming a political party, but not using our own assets to do so. At least we've got an obligation to challenge those, and we will be asked by the membership of the ANC. When President Zuma formed Umkonto Wesizu and turned it into a party, what steps did you take as leadership? We must account that right. we did challenge, and then uh, if our challenge becomes successful, then that will be good for the ANC. So, 
you've said a lot of, of interesting things there, and, and I want to home in on a few of them. The first is, is the decision that the ANC has taken, which is, which is a fascinating one, not to go down the formal expulsion route. And I suppose I can understand in some ways the, the logic and the strategy of that, because you don't want to make former President Zuma a martyr. You don't want this to become a, an even bigger story in some ways. The, the counter side of that, and I appreciate you, you're in something of a difficult position, is, is if you don't formally expel him, and he maintains he's a member of the party, then what happens if he attends party events? I mean, as an ex officio member of the NEC, he could, in theory, come to an NEC meeting. What would happen if he hasn't been formally expelled by the Constitution uh, in that kind of scenario, would you, would you, as a party, not be on the back foot there? Not ex officio, sorry, um, but as an honorary president. I have said that... Uh, okay, yes. I have said that uh, President Zuma uh, and his uh, withdrawal from the ANC, he has made it complicated uh, and uh, politically... Uh, define it as not leaving the ANC, but leaving the ANC of Ramaphosa. Mm. We will clarify that because there is nothing like an ANC of Ramaphosa. We will, we will, we will still clarify those issues, and we will also clarify his standing in relation to the ANC constitution. Those matters we are coming to them, can, not now. Can, can you? We will come to what, them, and that's what I was not, explaining to. Why not to, now? To the, uh, uh, that is what. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Caesar, let, sorry, let yeah, me. Sure, sure. But I'm, I'm just interested. Because, uh, it's because hmm. it. it, it, it hmm. Okay. That is why I was explaining to you that uh, we don't want to deal with this matter ad hoc, mm. uh, piece by piece. We want to deal with it holistically, and that's what we are going to do. So we will clarify the issue of his membership to the party, whether we take him through the DC process or not. But as we speak, he's gone. He's as good as gone. He's decampaigning the party, he's attacking the leadership of the party, he's blaming all the things that himself he was overseeing, that were challenges our government faced on the ANC. So that's what he's doing uh, at the present moment. So he's gone. He's as good as gone. Now, what the ANC must do as a responsible party is to explain that move unprecedented that a former president of an organization like us 2024 can move out of a part of the party and form normally people just uh, uh, retreat and uh, demobilize but they don't do what president zuma has done so we may think it is small it is not small uh, because we live in a world of politics uh, which are vibrant in our country. So there's no way the issue of Zuma is not going to be with us, especially the ANC and us explaining ourselves. So we've got to explain ourselves thoroughly from the statement he made and from including how we characterize this move and what exactly is this Mkonto you know, and uh, over and above that, we have taken steps. We are challenging this legally because that is our asset. We will respond at an appropriate time to this 
matter. It's just that uh, 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 we don't want to respond to this matter ad hoc. Today, Mbalula, like I was speaking at Mjindi, and then I spoke about Nkandla. I've been chased uh, and misinterpreted deliberately that I confessed. What did I say at Mjindi that did not happen in this country? Okay. about Nkandla and President Zuma and the standing of the ANC in society. So, so we don't want that. And I will accept any criticism that says, no, SG went overboard because we agreed that we'll respond to this matter. So we will respond to CISWE mm. comprehensively. Can I, can I ask you then, our structures are clearly guided on this matter. I, yeah. I, I hear you on, on, on that stance you've taken. But... This could, this could be a serious blow to the ANC in a place like KwaZulu-Natal. We know that every vote there is going to count in 2024. And that province is so big that it could have a spillover effect onto the national picture. Are you worried that former President Zuma's announcement of the MK party could seriously hamper the ANC's election prospects and bring it below that 50% or... Uh, certainly in KZN, but nationally as well, because this is something we've never seen, a former ANC president formally coming out against the party. Against the party. Any leader of the ANC uh, who can live like President Zuma does will affect the party negatively. We have had uh, political parties that were formed by credible people. I mean, Sam Shiloh was one of our best performing premiers in Gauteng. He left government without a scandal. He ran Gauteng like a proper economy. Uh, that's what he did. I mean, he left the ANC. And uh, we, we, we were mesmerized, but at the same time we managed to catch up. And uh, for whatever that President Zuma's departure is going to be like when it comes to party support, is it stand to be observed, but uh, we are preparing ourselves for a, for a bigger, not a battle, but war. And we're confident that uh, we will emerge out of that. And uh, obviously, there will be members of the ANC will go that direction. But if you look at this party, Largely, people who are going there are not disgruntled, are people who are affected by behavioral issues and uh, disciplinary issues and conduct uh, in the ANC, which generally uh, has been an albatross on the party. With the formation of this party, everybody has gone there and found a political nest to go and rest. And then we expect that uh, it will happen. When people don't get what they want, when people are affected by the renewal program of the ANC and they believe that this ANC is no longer for them because of the renewal, they, we expect that they will jump and then they will go. And uh, it will be unrealistic and uh, untruthful to tell you that uh, President Zuma's move in KwaZulu-Natal or even anywhere else in the country will affect the ANC. It stands out to be seen how the ANC will rise to, to, to the occasion uh, when it is confronted with such a challenge. It's not for the first time. This might be different, but uh, something like this did happen. I've given you some Shiloh. Welcome back. And that was an interview with the African National Congress Secretary General, 
Fakile Mbalula, uh, discussing uh, various aspects of uh, ANC politics uh, in light uh, of this year uh, being a national election year in the Republic of South Africa. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 14th, uh, 2024. This is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., holiday weekend in the United States. And uh, tomorrow uh, in the city of Detroit, that will be the 21st uh, annual Detroit uh, MLK Day Rally in March. They'll be held at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Church, uh, located uh, at 8850 Woodward Avenue at Holbrook, beginning at noon. And invited speakers include uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and UAW International President Sean Thain. We'll close out uh, our program uh, by reminding our listeners uh, that, uh, of course, you can uh, by going to along with uh, over 1,300 archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out our program with the band War uh, from their 1972 album, The World is a Ghetto. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Is a man's 